We've already read through the entirety of this chapter together, and I think we can all agree it was riveting from first to last. Amen? Okay. <clears throat> By the way, uh, I've had a cough basically since the day I was born, so please don't freak out. <clears throat> Uh, so I want to tell you guys about this coworker that I had back when I was in the military. We worked in the hospital together. Uh, I had been trying to evangelize him for quite some time, and to be honest, uh, it wasn't really going well. Uh, my coworker was not only not a Christian, but he was uh, fairly hostile to the gospel. I think he spent more time trying to convince me to lose faith in the Bible than I spent trying to get him to believe. The gospel. He was equally energized, maybe even more energized, to do some counter evangelism. He was outworking me. And eventually our conversations just sort of began to devolve into a battle of wits, which for me is never a good idea. I'm always going to be on the losing end of that. But an interesting dynamic began to develop between me and this guy. Uh, over time, I realized that he was always watching me, he was always waiting for me to slip up and to do something. Unchristian, which, you know, you watch, watch me long enough, not even that long, and it's bound to happen. So one day, uh, we were sitting there in the dining hall having breakfast together, uh, as we were prone to do, and as I'm shoveling food into my face, as I'm prone to do, I look up and I see that he's smiling at me with this kind of like gotcha smile, you know? I know something you don't know kind of a smile. So I stopped cramming food into my face for a second, and I, I asked him, you know, what are you so happy about? What are you, what are you, what's, that, what's that silly grin on your face about? He goes, oh, nothing. And I'm like, huh. Okay, I go back to eating, and he's still smiling. I can feel it. He's still smiling at me. And I you know, put my fork down. Hey, man, what, what's the deal? Why are you, why are you smiling like that? What, what's on your mind? Oh, you know, uh, I just thought you were the Bible guy. And, you know... That's a title that I'd be reticent to take on myself in certain settings. But I'm like, yeah, I am the Bible guy. I, what are you, I'm a Christian. Yeah, what, what's the deal? Oh, I just see you sitting there eating a plate full of bacon. Yeah, and I responded. And then he surprisingly quoted Leviticus 11.7 exactly to me, which reads like this. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of its flesh. So he's telling me pigs are unclean. I thought you would know that, Mr. Bible guy. Well, friends, this is maybe one of a dozen interactions that I've had with people who have said something similar to this, right? I've been in jail and, and seen prisoners pass up bologna sandwiches because uh, it's got pork in it, and the Bible says not to eat pork. When I first got to this church, as a matter of fact, there was a member who's no longer here who told me that he doesn't eat pork because the Bible says not to eat pork. And he said that in such a way that sounded surprised that he, that I didn't know that, you know. So what's the deal? Are we allowed to have pepperoni on our pizza? Or are we being, no, don't shake your head prematurely. You don't know the answer. Or are we being disobedient? Are we allowed to fry up some bacon to go with our eggs on a Saturday morning? Are we allowed to eat gummy bears? The gelatin in gummy bears is derived from pork products. Are, are Japanese Christians allowed to eat eels, which are forbidden here? Are French Christians allowed to eat horse steaks? Horse, eating horse is forbidden, and yes, French do eat horse. Well, there's only one way to find out. Leviticus 11. Let's make sure we understand this text together. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Even the parts that confuse us leave us scratching our head. We know that all of your word is inspired and breathed out for, for our good, for our training in godliness and righteousness, and for our salvation. Uh, we thank you that you've given us uh, the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to understand, to, to, to grasp these truths uh, with a little bit of help. And so, Lord, I, we pray that uh, I would be that help for many of us this morning. Lord, be with me. God, my words, help me to be clear and convincing. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. Uh, here they are. What are these laws? Why are these laws? And where are these laws? 
<coughs> so, one more time. What are these laws? Why are these laws? And where are these laws? Point number one, what are these laws? Uh, let me just give you a little heads up. This might be the, the, the most dense portion of the sermon. So really try to lock in, stay focused with me. Things are going to kind of lighten up as we go, but we've got to lay some groundwork, okay? Uh, so what are these laws? Simply put, these are the laws uh, about distinguishing between foods that are clean and unclean for God's covenant people, the Israelites. You can see that clearly summarized in verses 46 through 47. Look there. It says, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. To make a distinction between the clean, excuse me, the unclean and the clean and between the living creatures that may be eaten and the living creatures that may not be eaten. You got to love that. It's at the end of a chapter. It's a good little summary for you. Now, if you remember from last week in chapter 10, Uh, Moses told the priests that part of their responsibility as priests was to oversee Israel and help them distinguish between that which is clean and that which is unclean. Well, here we have God actually laying it out for us in written form, and this is what the priests are going to refer back to as they're leading God's people through these spiritual matters. They're going to say, hey, don't touch that gecko, or hey, feel free to eat that animal uh, with the hoof that is split. Um, In... The book of Leviticus alone, the terms clean and unclean appear over a hundred times. So it's probably pretty important that we understand what they mean. Uh, The thing that can confuse us about these words is that we sometimes think that they refer to something like uh, holiness or righteousness. We think clean means righteous or holy and unclean means uh, sinful or morally bad. That's actually not accurate. These, these terms are primarily used, although not solely used, but they are primarily used to refer to ceremonial cleanness, right? How fit are you as uh, the people of God, as an Israelite, to enter into worship of a holy and righteous God, right? So if you come into contact with something that's unclean, now you are not fit to do things like Uh, offer sacrifices in the temple, participate in feasts and festivals and things like that. And for an Israelite, this is a really big deal because this is the way that God has commanded them to approach him and worship. And you should know that it's not just uh, animals that are unclean. Objects can be unclean. Other kinds of food besides animals can be unclean. Clothing can be unclean. Sacrifices can be unclean. Other people are considered unclean. You saw that in the Acts chapter 10 reading. Certain bodily discharges can make a person unclean. Uh, Women after childbirth were unclean for a couple of days. And we're going to talk about some of these things next week as we continue to move through Leviticus, Lord willing, and the world doesn't catch on fire before them. For this morning, however, uh, we're just going to focus on food, on animals, okay? Because that's what chapter 11 is all about. Um... Now, in order to understand these laws, you have to remember what Leviticus is all about, right? What is the book of Leviticus about? Well, we've already said it. In one sentence, it's God is calling a sinful people back into his holy presence for worship. Okay, that's what the entire book of Leviticus is about. And we don't want to say that God is picky in how we must approach him, because picky seems to it seems to communicate the idea of like arbitrariness, you know, like, like my kid who won't eat anything that's green uh, unless it's a candy, right? That's picky. That's not really how God is. He's not picky. We can say that he just, he is very intentional in setting the conditions by which sinful men might approach him uh, for holy worship. And we've seen that through vivid detail in the first 10 chapters of the book of Leviticus. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. God has laid everything out just so. And, and so we see that every aspect of Israelite life was designed by God to communicate something about the reality of this theme, the reality of our sinfulness and God's holiness, right? So the food that you eat as an Israelite is supposed to communicate something about your sinfulness and God's holiness. The clothes that you wear are supposed to communicate something about your sinfulness and God's holiness. So next week we're going to be looking at a verse that talks about no mixing fabrics and clothing, 
right? Do we think that God is just not a fan of like Under Armour? No, that's not the issue, right? It's meant to communicate something deeper than that. Uh, The schedule that you keep as an Israelite is designed to communicate something about your sinfulness and God's holiness. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day as holy because God is holy, that kind of thing. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in point number two, uh, because I'm kind of getting into the why. So let me stop that, and let me just break down how chapter 11 works, okay, how, how it's all put together. Generally speaking, you can break down chapter 11 into two big sections. The first section will be verses 1 through 23, and that deals primarily with the creatures that Israelites could and couldn't eat. And then you could further break it down, part 2, verses 24 through 45, that would deal with the creatures that the Israelites could not come into contact with, particularly dead animals. But if you want to break it down even further, you could break it down into five sections. You have the land creatures from verses 2 through 8, and there they distinguish between which of these land creatures are edible and inedible. Then you have the water creatures in verses 9 through 12, again, which of these are edible and inedible. Then you have flying creatures, both birds and insects, from verses 13 through 23, which are edible and inedible. Then you have dead animals, right? That's the next big chunk all the way down from 24 to 45. And how you're supposed to, you know, the gecko falls in your basin. Ah, well, I guess you got to break the basin, okay? That kind of thing. And then in verses 46 through 47, you have a summary of basically the entire chapter. So let me give you some highlights uh, from the chapter. I know we read, read through it all, but you might have kind of spaced out at like verse 7 and then came back in at verse 11 and then spaced out again at verse 23. I'm not saying that reading about locusts doesn't do it for y'all, but maybe you might have missed some of it. So I'm, let me just try to summarize, okay? I'm going to give you six little, I mean, rapid fire bullet points. Cloven hooved, cud chewing land animals could be eaten. So sheep and cattle, but not things like pigs or horses, or camels, right? Can't, can't, can't eat those. Uh, only fish which have fins and scales may be eaten. So no eating eels and other things like that. Most birds of prey cannot be eaten. I don't know if you guys noticed, they listed like four different kinds of owls in that list, right? You got the little owl, the speckled owl, the speckled owl. No, that's not right. Okay, flying insects may not be eaten, but hopping insects are edible. But if it's, uh, if it's got legs and wings, you know, like... I don't, I don't have a great example. Uh, some of those are clean, some of them are not clean. Touching dead carcasses of unclean animals makes one unclean, and clean animals that die of natural causes make one unclean. Y'all tracking? Everybody with me? All right. So, we have the basic gist of what these laws are. They are about determining which foods are clean and which foods are unclean. And now we know what clean and unclean means, right? Right? You touch this, you can't participate in worship, you gotta, you gotta wait a little while, you gotta do a cleansing, then you can't. But we still have to ask the tough question, why? Why, oh why, God, have you decided to designate certain animals one way and certain animals another way? That leads us to point number two. Why are these laws? Um, being an American, you know that there is just this endless cycle of new diet fads that we're just always working through as a country, right? So for example, you have the Atkins diet. It was wildly popular 15 years ago. You remember that? Everybody was just like cheese and bacon and sausage, and they were like, oatmeal, that's a carb. It's unhealthy. Bacon and sausage and cheese again, right? And uh, then it kind of went dormant for a while. It wasn't really popular. Nobody really talked about it. And now it's back and better than ever, and it's been rebranded the ketogenic diet. It sounds more scientific. It sounds better. Everybody is avoiding carbs like the plague. Excuse the pun. Um, (laughs) Now, the why of these different diets varies greatly. Why why are you doing this diet and not that diet? So some diets are all about promoting heart health. You think about the Mediterranean diet. It's like, let's, let's chug a gallon of olive oil and and eat hummus, you know, that's going to help our hearts. Or you can think about, you know, the keto diet Though we just talked about. The keto diet, it's all about rapid weight loss. You know, I got to get 15 pounds off before the wedding. So, you know, no carbs for me. Uh, Or Grant, who was just on the verge of death from being so unhealthy, right? Or you can think about the Whole30, which is really just about being a weirdo, annoying everyone in your life, 
right? And just generally being miserable for an entire month, you know? Hey, I've done it. I've experimented with it before. I'm speaking firsthand, okay? Well, uh, Ligon Duncan refers to these, these commands in Leviticus 11. He refers to them as the South Sinai diet, okay? So now, the question is, why has God prescribed the South Sinai diet? When you talk to people who advocate for their diets, they always say, well, we eat this and not that because it helps with this. Well, why eat this and not that, God? What is it helping us with? What's the purpose? Um, I mean, it seems like the Israelites must have understood what the purpose was, why there was this kind of classification, this breakdown, because there's no explanation. So perhaps it just meant intuitive, it just made intuitive sense to them, but that's not the case for us today. So why does God care if I eat a horse or an insect? By the way, God seems to be very pro-locust, right? Uh, And uh, why didn't God want the Israelites to eat pigs or seagulls or crabs? Setting aside the fact that crabs, again, are just spiders at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, let's explore some possibilities together. Um, A number of different possibilities have been suggested, suggested from all different corners of the church for centuries and centuries, and not all of them uh, are helpful. Actually, I would say the vast majority of these explanations are unhelpful. They fail to adequately take into account uh, all the different animals on the list or a good theology of how the Bible fits together. So let's just walk through some of these uh, bad explanations, right? Because I want you to know, if you hear this in the future, I want you to be able to say, actually, that's, that's not why those laws were there, okay? Number one is the allegorical view, right? So uh, some of the early church fathers, excuse me, some of the later church fathers, and then uh, many Roman Catholic theologians later in time, uh, they loved allegorical methods of interpretation. If you're not familiar with that, it's basically like there's a super deep, secret, spiritual meaning behind some of these plain facts of Scripture. So an example could be the split hoof has to do with double-mindedness, and God says we shouldn't be double-minded, that kind of thing. Another example would be uh, pigs like to wallow around in filth and mud, and a sinner's we wallow around in our spiritual filth and mud, and therefore we can't eat pigs. That's a real explanation that was offered by a real church father. Uh, In general, we just don't think that the allegorical method of scriptural interpretation is good. It abandons the historical and grammatical context of scripture, and it kind of leaves it up to us to just always be looking for some secret spiritual meaning that, you know, nobody can say is wrong or right because we just make it up on the spot. So it's bad, we don't do it, that's probably not right. Definitely, absolutely. Next, we have the health and hygiene view. The health and hygiene view. So you take pigs, for example. We know that they're kind of gross. They eat their own filth. They can carry some pretty nasty parasites. But aside from pigs, there aren't really many other animals on this list that are health and hygiene issues. When you look at like all the animals that are prohibited from being consumed, it's like pigs are kind of dangerous. And then we saw bats on there, right? You're not supposed to eat bats. Well, we're we're living through that. You know, they think the coronavirus may have come from a bat. Okay. So we got pigs and bats, but there's a bunch of other stuff that you can't eat that really there's no hygiene reasons for, you know? So that view just doesn't really make sense. On top of that, It doesn't account for the fact that um, Jesus in his ministry, he declares these foods clean. And not a lot had changed between Mount Sinai and Jesus in Jerusalem, right? It's not like there had been Clorox wipes and refrigerators and, you know, advanced meat thermometers to make sure that the rabbit is cooked all the way through. There had been really no change between the book of Leviticus and the gospel of Mark. So... The hygiene thing would have still been an issue in Jesus' day if that was one of the main reasons. So it doesn't seem like it is. Next, we have the the death view or the disassociation from death view. This view says that basically you couldn't eat animals that ate other animals. So if you look at like the bird section of this text, all of these birds, they're, they're basically predator birds. You know, they eat other animals, they eat flesh. And so the argument goes, you'd... As Christians, we're not supposed to, or as God's people, we're not supposed to be associated with death but life, and so we don't eat animals that partake in the process of death. Well, that's, that's problematic for like 17 different reasons, but like, let me just give you 
uh, one of them. There's herbivores in this list that don't eat other animals that, are, that we're not allowed to eat, so that doesn't really make sense. And then two, when God comes and finally, like, uh, definitely, profoundly to Peter, declares all foods clean, he says that he does it by saying, rise up, kill, and eat. Okay, so there's, again, another little disconnect there. So finally, we're going to come to what I think is the correct view. I could have, there's probably like four other bad views I could share with you, but those are the big ones. Uh, It's called the Gentile view. I think this is the right view, and I think you're going to be convinced of it by the time I get finished. So this view says that these prohibitions were given to the Israelites in order to keep them separate and distinct from their pagan neighbors. Okay? Now, in order to assess the validity of this view, you have to remember where you are in the story of salvation. God has just begun to form a people for himself. Yes, it started long ago with Abraham, but this is like, you know, they're a big group of people, and he's finally got them all together, and he's given them his law. They're going to be his people. He's going to be their God. And the first thing that he tells them, and one of the most frequent things that he tells them, now that he's calling them to be a people, is, you must be holy as I am holy. Now, these people, the Israelites, they've just come from Egypt. They still got clay under their fingernails from working on the bricks back in the land of Egypt as slaves, okay? And you'll remember that one of God's main concerns for his newly formed people is that they remain holy even as they go into the midst of these pagan nations, right? So uh, that's, for example, one of the main reasons why God actually, I think it's probably the only reason why God forbids intermarrying. Right? As God gives the law to his people as they're getting ready to enter in the promised land, he says, you're not supposed to marry somebody from a different tribe, a different clan, a different state. You know, no, no mixing. Right? And despite what your racist uncle might have told you, this actually has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with the fact that if you marry that Samaritan woman or that Canaanite woman, you're probably going to end up worshiping that Canaanite God. So God forbids it for the sake of holiness. Now, as you continue to read through the book of uh, the Bible, particularly from the book of Leviticus onward, you find that as the people of God move into the promised land, and as they begin to get settled there, they begin to intermingle with the peoples around them. I mean, it's just, it's pathetic how quickly it happens. Like, it just doesn't take long at all. And so, like, as soon as you get to, like, the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges is about how God's people have let their pagan neighbors influence their lives. They have begun to become subject to the cultures and the nations around them. And so God raises up judges to rebuke them and correct that. On top of that, you have to remember not just where we are in the story of the Bible and what God is doing here. He wants them to be holy and distinct and separate from these pagans. You also have to remember how food functioned in the ancient world right? Most of us, the way we eat now is like, you know, drive through McDonald's and shame eat a Big Mac between work and like my kid's softball practice, right? Get out of the car, dust all the lettuce off of you and keep going. But things were very different in the ancient world. In the ancient world, food was for fellowship. In the ancient world, the dinner table was more, it was about more than food. It was about community, right? Relationships were built, bonds were made, values were shared around meals. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians not to even eat with someone who professes to be a Christian but who persists in unrepentant sin. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so upset with Jesus for eating with sinners, right? Because they just knew what happened around dinner tables. And so in these laws, God seems to be making sure that his holy people don't allow that kind of thing to happen between them and their Gentile neighbors. Uh, one, one commentator, I think, really hits the nail on the head, so I'm just going to read him for, for two paragraphs. Stay with me. He says, Cows, for instance, are perfectly fine for the Israelites to eat. They can have beef, but to eat, to eat beef, this was an odious thing to an ancient Egyptian because ancient Egyptians, like modern-day practicing Hindus, venerated cows. And so for a Hebrew to eat beef was offensive to an Egyptian. And so the Lord, by telling a Hebrew that beef was okay for him to have, has just built a barrier between the Hebrew and that Gentile Egyptian. On the other hand, pigs were highly venerated in Canaan, and Canaan was the land of the promised land that they were entering into. Pigs were highly venerated in Canaan, and they were used for meat. 
But here the meat of the pig is forbidden to the Hebrew. And so the Hebrew is separated from the Canaanite by his dietary requirements. And in fact, if you look at the dietary requirements here, and by here he means Leviticus 11, it would have effectively separated Israel from the Egyptians, the Arabs, the Babylonians, and from all the Canaanite tribes in the region. Their dietary practices would not have meshed with this particular dietary requirement. And so the fundamental purpose of this set of dietary laws is to distinguish Israel from the nations. I think this makes the most sense out of all the possible reasons why God forbids some animals and permit others. Uh, moreover, I think this option makes the most sense out of verses 44 and 45. Go there and look at that real quick. It says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore. And consecrate means to set apart as a holy thing. So consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. So here you see God's ultimate rationale, right, for this South Sinai diet. He says, listen, I rescued you from Egypt. And if you remember in the Pentateuch, uh, Egypt represents death, right? And so he's saying, listen, I rescued you from death. I'm, I'm taking you to the promised land, which represents life and salvation and everything that's good. And he's saying, and, and I'm, the one who's doing that is holy. And now that you're my people, I want you to be holy too. And I need you to reflect that in every area of your life. Now, you have to leave open one other possibility, that there could be a mixture of different rationales that God has employed for giving these food laws. Could it be that the primary reason is that they would be holy and distinct from their neighbors, and then maybe there are some health concerns thrown in there on top of it a little bit, and maybe there are some distinguishing from death concerns? Sure, that's, that's certainly possible, but I think most of that is speculation, and it's not anything that I can like cling to or glom onto from the text. So I'm just not going to be super confident in it. All right. Point number three. Where are these laws? Where are these laws? So now we come back to my unbelieving co-worker. Was he right? Well, that comes down to the question, are these regulations still in effect today for God's people? Should I eat bacon or not? Setting aside whether or not I should eat as much bacon as I do. Well, the answer is, of course, that my coworker just didn't really know how to read his Bible, right? He didn't understand how the story of the Bible unravels and unfolds. If he did, he would have known that these food laws, along with many other uh, aspects of the Old Covenant, uh, no longer applied to Christians in the same way because of the reality of the New Covenant. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark seven eighteen, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, there's a lot to be said here about what goes into you and what comes out of you and how that works with defilement. That's not really what we're going to talk about this morning. I just want to show you that Jesus himself has declared that all foods are clean. He's saying, guys, listen, now that I'm here, now that the, the gospel has come into effect, these laws are no longer necessary. And he does this uh, over and over again in his ministry, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. He says these same kinds of things. He says, hey, listen, Moses said this, which is like basically saying there was this law, Right? Moses says this, but now that I'm here, I'm revealing to you the fullness of the law. And then in Matthew 5.17, he's even super clear. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that language of fulfillment, that's Jesus just saying, hey, listen, now that I'm here, these laws are in effect in a very different way. Okay? Now, the reason why these laws can be done away with is because Jesus fulfilled them. You remember from our time in the book of Hebrews, right, that Jesus 
is the fulfillment of the shadow of the law. The law was like a shadow and it was pointing forward to the, the day that would come when Jesus would arrive and he would fulfill everything. He would fulfill righteousness, he would fulfill obedience, he would fulfill the prophets, he would fulfill the laws. He was everything that we were waiting for. And here's what you need to know about his coming. Here's, so if, you've, if you're kind of like scatterbrained, like not, haven't really latched on to anything I've said in like the last three minutes, latch on to this, okay? In his coming and in his fulfilling of the law through his gospel work, Jesus has done away with the Jew-Gentile distinction. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse, we'll start in verse 11. <clears throat> it says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So you were separated from God, you were separated from God's promises, you were separated from God's people, you were separated. Jews and Gentiles, distinct. Verse 13, but now, in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. So it's pretty clear, right? No more Jew, no more Gentile, through Jesus. But then we have to ask the question, well, what about the law? I mean, God gave this law to his people for this reason. At least one of the reasons was to create a barrier, to create a distinction, to put a wall up between his holy people and the unholy nations. Well, if, if the nations are coming together, what does that mean for the law? Well, just keep reading. It says, And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? There, there's that wall, right? Jew on one side... <coughs> Gentile on the other. He's broken that down. How has he done it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So you're, you're thinking, Sean, just in Matthew 5.17, he said that he didn't come to abolish the law. Well, read carefully. He says he's abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay? So the way that the law is expressed through these ordinances like Leviticus 11, don't eat this, do eat that, all of that, it's being done away with. Why? so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now, it took the New Testament church uh, a while to figure out exactly how this, uh, all the nations coming together to sing kumbaya and be at peace in one body, how that's all supposed to work out, right? Uh, there was a lot of confusion about Gentiles coming into the church and what that would mean for things like the practice of circumcision and celebrating certain holy days and even what foods Christians were allowed to eat. And so in Acts chapter 15, we see that the early church calls a council, particularly because these missionaries who went out from one church had a kerfluffle with missionaries who were from another church about what kind of foods to eat. Now, if you feel like this stuff is kind of like hard to wrap your mind around, you should be encouraged. You know, man, Leviticus 11, okay, I'm, I think I'm tracking... We don't have to eat like this anymore, but I'm not really sure I understand exactly why. I'm trying to pay attention to Sean, but he's, uh, you know, he's got a, a face for radio, so it's distracting. Uh, what's, I can't, hey, listen, you're not the only one. The early church had a hard time with it. Peter had a hard time with it, right? Uh, and so in Acts chapter 10, God has to give Peter a vision to explain exactly what has happened so that he can understand, okay? So turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I know we read it together, but we're going to walk through some pieces of it again to make sure we understand what's happening here. So in this vision we're about to read together, uh, God tells Peter that Jesus, excuse me, God tells Peter what Jesus had already told his disciples back in Mark 7. What's interesting is that most scholars believe that Peter uh, was uh, the discipler of Mark and that Mark got most of his material from Peter. And that comment that we read, and thus Jesus declared all foods clean, that's actually a parenthetical comment. That's where the author stops 
to make like a little remark about what's taking place in the narrative that he's telling. So it's possible that as Jesus is commun- excuse me, as Peter is like telling Mark what happened with Jesus, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said that, he like stops and tells Mark and like, hey, by the way, this is the place in Jesus's ministry where he declared all foods clean. I didn't get it back then. I had to have a vision later when I was sitting on a roof, but I didn't realize it, but that was actually the time when Jesus did it. So, so in this vision, God is telling Peter what Jesus had already said in Mark 7, that all foods are clean. So look at verse 11. It says, And he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Um, and there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? So, Peter, good Jewish boy, disciple of a good Jewish rabbi, how do you think he responds to this vision that says, go and eat these unclean animals? Well, he says this, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So he's, he's like, no way. I'm a good Jew. I know Leviticus 11. I had to remember, I had to memorize the book of Leviticus when I was a child. I know I'm not supposed to eat these things. Typical Peter, slow on the uptick, slow to believe the words of the Lord. So the voice goes on and it continues to explain to him. The voice spoke to him for a second time saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God has made it clean. And there we have it. The same animals that were declared unclean in Leviticus 11 are declared clean in Acts chapter 10. So now that leaves us with a question. Why does God change his mind about these animals? Why were they unclean back then, but they're clean now? Did they go through some sort of like spiritual evolutionary adaptation process where like spiritually they became more acceptable to God over time with chance? No. Have the, have the animals, is, is, is God just being arbitrary? Is he just up there in heaven like, yeah, I just don't want you to eat that. But you know, some time passes and he's like, all right, you can eat it now. Is that what's happening? No, that can't be what's happening. That's, our God is not arbitrary. Well, I think, I think we have the answer. If you remember that the main purpose of these food laws was to keep the people of Israel holy and distinct, separate from the Gentiles around them, well, then actually it makes perfect sense that God at this time, after Jesus has come and lived his life and died on the cross and been resurrected up to glory, now that he's welcoming all the Gentiles into the body of Christ, then it makes sense that he cancels these food laws, which was meant to keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate. Does that make sense? And so Peter, as slow as he can be sometimes, he understands this by the end of chapter 10. And not only that, but he understands that it's not really just about food, right? So you go on to verse 28, and he says this. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That's really interesting, because in the vision that Peter got, the voice didn't say anything about not calling anyone impure. Or unclean. It talked about animals. But Peter exegetes Leviticus 11 for us here. He explains scripture for us. He understands now that the food laws weren't really about food. They were about Jew and Gentile regulations. And so now he's letting us know, now that Jews and Gentiles are back together, we no longer need these food laws. And all food is clean. And then, in order to validate this message of Jew and Gentile reconciliation in one body that Peter is preaching, we read this in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so this miraculous sign, this 
Remember from our Wednesday nights, we talk about sign gifts and these big demonstrable ways that God moves in order to communicate at very important and crucial times in church history. Well, here we have that. And here he's doing it so that everyone who's there knows, yes, these Gentiles, in fact, have been received into the body. And so now you can eat your bacon, you can eat your eels, you can eat your horse steaks if you want to, because there's no longer this concept of clean and unclean food or people. Now, what does this mean for our lives? Like, I know the Bible nerds right now are like, "Uh uh-huh, give me more. Explain how all of it fits together for me. I love what we're doing this morning. Keep it up. And some of you guys are like, yeah, I think my kid just went to the bathroom in his pants. So can somebody please tell me what any of this means for my life? Well, let's talk about some application. Uh, I think if I were to stop with the applications that you can eat bacon now, that would be enough, right? Amen? But there's more. There's more. Uh, A lot of what we do in the book of Leviticus is we try to understand what's happening in the text, what it meant for the people at that time, and then we recognize that because of the cross, it doesn't apply to us in the same way, so we try to figure out how it does apply to us. And and we do that by looking at what are the undercurrents of the text, or what are the universal, timeless principles that are on display in the text that may have been expressed one way in that time but are now expressed in a different way in our own time. So an example of that would be what we did last week with Nadab and Abihu, right? You know, it's all about these priests who were offering up bad worship in the sanctuary of God, right? And because they're not doing their priestly duties right, they're killed. And, you know, we sit in these pews and we go, okay, well, I'm not like a priest priest serving in the in the tabernacle offering up these bloody sacrifices. for how, So how does this text apply to my life? And we saw that really it's all about approaching God as he commands, right? And then that applies to our life in every way. We have to worship according to his regulations. Well, the same thing is true uh, for today's text, right? The point of this text is that God calls his people to be holy and distinct from the world, Right? And these food laws were just one way of accomplishing that, one way that God made sure that his people would be holy and distinct from the world. But the point is that we would be holy and distinct. And, and brothers and sisters, that's, that's a universal truth for God's people. It never goes away. It never changes. So later in our members meeting, we're going to be uh, called to order by 1 Peter 2.9. And this is how it reads. It says, but you are a chosen race. And here he's not referring to Jews. He's talking to Christians. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see that? He says that we are still a holy nation. And the reason why we are holy is because we are called to proclaim God through our holiness. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. Now I need you to reflect that to the world. Doesn't that just sound like what we read in Leviticus 11.45? It's the same thing. Listen, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt so that I would be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. Same thing. Expressed differently. Same principle. Now we, we may not have a list of clean and unclean foods, but you know I still think there is a sense in which we could even just talk about application for food for our lives. There is a way that we can consume food that will show our holiness to the world or that will distract from our holiness to the world, right? So I'm going to give you five ways that we can consume food to the glory of God. So if you're thinking, Sean, are you sneaking in not only an extra point, but an extra five subpoints? The answer is yes, I am, and I'm not even ashamed. Okay. And these are going to be pretty rapid fire, okay? Uh, so... First one, and I'm just going to be pretty blunt here, we live in a nation of gluttons, okay, who treat food like God. So one of the ways that we can be holy as God's people is holy, uh, excuse me, as God's people is by not letting food be a God to us. Number two, another way that we can use food to the glory of God is to enjoy it to the glory of his name, right? God is glorified when we enjoy our food. On the one hand, it's this weird tension that we live in in America where like, we're like, you know, cake and bacon and donut burgers and put it all in my face. And there's an aspect where we're like sinful about food in that way. 
But also, we're like the most health-conscious nation in the world, and sometimes we treat food like it's an evil, like God hasn't given it to us for our good, right? And so there's a sense in which we can actually be distinct from the world by not treating food like something that has to be micromanaged and avoided at all costs. We can, we can enjoy it, and when we do enjoy it, we enjoy it in proper proportion. We enjoy it at the right time. Instead of having 15 slices of pizza, we have two slices of pizza, and we say, God, thank you for making pepperoni clean. Okay. The third way, um, we can use our dinner tables or our out-to-eat times or whatever in a way that advances the gospel, right? So we can do that by having fellowship with the saints of the church, you know, we're inviting people over for dinner. I know what you're thinking, Sean, my house is a mess, my kids are destroying everything, or I feel like my place isn't, you know, very hospitable. Listen, where there's a will, there's a way. If you want to share a meal with your brother or sister in Christ and spend time with them, you can do it, you know. For, for me, one of the ways that we do that, if, if I asked my wife to prepare a meal every time that I wanted to sit down and have a member of the church over so we could talk about something, I would run my poor wife into the ground. So I just take people out to lunch. That's kind of like the main thing that I do. I take people out to the lunch. Okay, that's me trying to uh, use food as a time for fellowship in my own life, given my circumstances. And you just have to find your way. You have to find what works best for you, okay? Um, we can also do this by uh, using food and, and mealtime as a time for evangelism. Listen, it's super easy to begin a relationship with someone by just inviting them out for lunch. You know, your coworkers, hey man, you got any lunch plans today? Yeah, my wife packed me a, a tuna salad sandwich. Oh man, your wife's a sweet lady, I'm sure, but why don't we go eat some tacos instead? You know, that kind of thing. I used to do this with my coworkers all the time in the army. You know, I'd invite them out to some dive bar down the street in D.C. and we'd get fried pickles and, and, and hopefully I would get to the gospel. I do this with guys in the jiu-jitsu gym. We finish up a hard training practice and I'm like, hey man, let me buy you some wings. Let's go out and talk. And, you know, I'm happy to pick up the check because who knows, maybe after two of those meetings, I'll be able to talk to them about Jesus. That kind of thing. All right, number four. Uh, another way that we can be distinct from the world in our food consumption is by not finding our ultimate comfort in food. You guys remember the, the movie Paul Blart, Mall Cop? Yeah, one of the finest pieces of cinema uh, in the last several years. Uh, Paul Blart, he gets fired from a job that he really cares about, right? And the next scene is like he's just downing a jar of peanut butter, Right? And his daughter says something to him about it. And he's like, hey, I'm filling the cracks of my heart with this peanut butter. And all too often, that's what we do, right? We, we treat food as our great comforter. Listen, guys, I'm right there with you, okay? I'm confessing as I'm preaching. Really bad day, it's time for some Ben and Jerry's. Now, to be fair, really good day, also time for some Ben and Jerry's, right? But really bad day, time for some Ben and Jerry's. And when we do that, I think we can tend to communicate that, like, food is our ultimate comforter when, in fact... God has given us the spirit of himself to live in us, and he's even called it him, the comforter, right? So we have a comforter. I'm not saying we can't ever take comfort in things below, but we should never take ultimate comfort in things below when our Father above has given us his comfort from heaven. Fifth one, we can glorify God by being willing to give up food for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul discusses matters of Christian liberty which involve a lot of things, but to a great extent, uh, it involves food and what foods you should eat based off of people around you who may have a different uh, level of conscience about these foods. And this is what he says. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the one under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself I am not under the law. So what that means for Paul is that even though he feels free to eat a pig, if he's trying to evangelize some Jews, right, he's just not going to eat the pig. Or if he's got some, some Christians who have come into the church from a Jewish background and their conscience isn't quite there yet on eating pepperoni, he's just not going to eat pepperoni for the sake of their conscience, okay? Then he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of myself. Then he goes on and he says, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So one of the ways that we can use food in a holy manner under the Lord is by being willing to sacrifice food or partake of food for the sake of the gospel. You have to think about how tremendously inconveniencing this must have been 
for the people of Israel to follow the, raw, the laws of Leviticus 11, right? I mean, just think about it. There's a famine in the lamb, land. People are dying. They are hungry. They are starving. And you still can't eat that food. That's still off limits. It doesn't, it, the, the, the famine doesn't change the fact that you can't eat these animals, okay? It just would have been a big inconvenience for them. And sometimes using food in such a way that shows our love for our neighbors and that furthers the gospel can be inconveniencing, uh, can be an inconvenience for us, right? So, you know, I'm trying to evangelize a Jewish guy. You know, I guess I'm going to get a cheese pizza. Or, you know, I'm trying to evangelize my neighbor. And uh, I say, hey, what are you guys up for? Any, any food you don't eat? And they're like, oh, hey, we're vegans. Okay, all right, well, I guess we're going to have yucky dinner tonight. But the point is, I'm willing to be weak for the sake of those who are weak. And there's no one weaker than vegans, okay? And so I'm... <laughs> I'm willing to, I want to say, because my theology is good, right? I want to say, dude, rise up, kill and eat. It's in the Bible, right? But, uh, but I also have a, a deeper theology that says, to the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. Um, now, I have one final point of application, and yes, that's another sneak in. Uh, it's this. Um, we are not merely called to be holy, but as Christians, uh, we are also commissioned to call the nations to holiness, right? We're not supposed to just sit here in our holy little bubbles. We're supposed to call people into this holiness that God has called us into. The people of God have always, uh, were always supposed to be uh, uh, holy and separate. They were supposed to be a light that, that drew the nations in. But the way that we do that now is a little bit different. And... Uh, let me explain what I mean. There are two different forces, and I'm about to get way in over my head, so somebody who knows more about things can come and correct me afterwards. But there are two, two kinds of forces uh, in physics. Well, there's a bunch of different kinds, but two specifically that I want to talk about. Centripetal and centrifugal. Okay? Centripetal force is that force which pulls mass inwards. Right? The thing is spinning, and the, the force of the way that it spins, it pulls everything towards the center. That's how the Old Testament people of Israel were on mission. They were supposed to be this burning, white, hot light of holiness that the nations could see and they'd be drawn in like a moth to a flame. It was centrifugal. We're so holy, we're trying to call the nations into us. But now, in light of the cross, we are centrifugal. Centrifugal is this force that propels mass outwards, okay? And so uh, the, the call for Christians in light of the New Covenant is not just to be burning hot. We're actually both. We're not just to be burning hot like a light that calls them off in. We're actually called to go out and to wrangle them off, to call the nations in. But Jesus propels us outward, and we go and we preach the gospel. And so we are not ultimately being obedient to the principle of these commands if we just strive to be holy and end it there. We have to call the nations into our holiness, tell them of all that Jesus has done to save them from their sins and to bring them back home to God. On that note, let's pray. Father, your word is truth. You've washed us with the word of your truth this morning. We thank you and we love you. Amen. Let's stand